Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, thank you for joining us again for another episode of Living History. Thank you for all the feedback you sent after last week's episode. We got a lot of uh, good responses to our episode about Framel. Uh, and this is part two of our story of the Australians on the Somme in 1916. Today, we're going to talk about the Battle of Pozieres, which was really the the second part of this story. It was really a, a, a saga in two chapters, the Battle of Fromel, which occurred on the 19th and 20th of July, 1916, and then the Battle of Pozieres, which is Australia's first proper involvement in the huge Battle of the Somme. And Pozieres would go on to be the most costly battle in Australian military history. So just a, a really profound subject, a really important one to talk about. I think it's interesting that in recent years, Fromel has probably overshadowed Pozier a little bit uh, because of the discovery of the mass grave and the story that we told in last week's podcast. But it wasn't always like that. For a very long time, Pozier was considered one of the most, if not the most important Australian battle on the Western Front. So we're going to talk about that today and break it down in detail. And joining me to do that is the guest from last week's podcast, and she's back again. It's Joe Hook from the UK. Joe, thanks for joining us again on Living History. It's a pleasure. Nice to be here again. Um, uh, yeah, nice to be talking about uh, the Australians on the Western Front. So thank you for Now, I should me. say this. I should say this is that you are obviously from the UK and you know your British military history very, very well. But we're, we're blessed with Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours that we have guides who, who may be based in the UK or based in France but live and breathe the Australian story. And that's certainly the case with you. Tell, just tell us what it's like leading these Australian groups on the battlefields of the Western Front. Um, well, it's, it, it is different to leading British groups. And I think um, you get a kind of complacency, I think, with British groups because we have so, such a wealth of history. I mean, you know yourself, come over to England, come over to Great Britain, and there's history wherever you wherever you step and it goes back thousands and thousands of years and so we get kind of complacent but for the Australians um, really the first world war is the time their nation first fights as a nation in its own right um, and I so I think the focus on that and certainly I'm always amazed that the amount of Australians we get coming over um, for us this is just like, you know, I can I can be in Ypres um, by lunchtime today by just getting on the ferry. But for the Australians coming, the distances you guys come from 
it never really ceases to amaze me. But there is a real passion for being able to trace relatives and to, to walk in the footsteps on the battlefields of where these guys fought. So, um, yeah, hat, hats off to you guys out there in Australia. Well, I think you're very humble as well, Joe, because you tell the Australian story better than I think most Australians, and that includes me. Um, mm-hmm. One of our very, uh, one of our most highly regarded guides on the battlefields, and and the feedback we always get from people is just how passionate about remembering these men you are. That that it's something that, uh, that you do very well. So, you know, it's it's a great experience to walk the ground and. This is going to be a, an experience we're going to discuss today when we talk about the Battle of Pozier because one of the most special places for me on the battlefield, the place I've been visiting for the longest on the battlefields, the first time the Australians participated actively in the Battle of the Somme on the Somme battlefields, uh, and a battle that would go on for six weeks and cost the lives of 23,000 Australians killed and wounded, uh, which makes it the most costly battle in Australian history. So just... Even just those statistics just send a shudder down your spine. And when you walk the ground, it's a, it's a small area. The, the, the village of Pozier, which has been rebuilt on the site of the original, the original, of course, was destroyed during the fighting and it's been rebuilt. It's not a big area. It doesn't take long to walk from one end of the village to the other and out into the fields where the Australians died. It's a, it's, it's a pretty extraordinary place, especially when you group it together with the battle we discussed last week, the Battle of Fromel. They're just extraordinary stories, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and you're quite correct. I mean, um, the Somme battlefield uh, in which those 23,000 lives were lost is really no more than, I would say, a kilometre and a half square, would you think, Matt? Um, yeah, I think that would be and, right. And, and the various phases, you group it with, um, so part of the uh, posiers where the Australians fought also includes Mouquet Farm. And Geoffrey Malins, who was the cinematographer at the time, he, he filmed that iconic Battle of the Somme film where you see Hawthorne uh, Crater going up. He called Mouquet Farm the most superbly defended position on the whole of the Somme battlefield. Uh, and that plays a huge role uh, when we talk about Poziers. And as you quite rightly say, 23,000 uh, lives. If you put that into perspective, that is just a little bit less than the Australians suffered during the whole kind of nine-month Gallipoli campaign. So that gives you a kind of perspective in an area that's no more than a kilometre and a half square, 23,000 lives. It's a huge number. And and I couldn't agree with you more, uh, Matt. It, it, it's sacrificial ground for the, uh, specifically for the Australians. And not just are those figures horrendous, but you think about the time scale as well. Six weeks we're talking about here. You know, yeah. it, it took nine months to lose that many people at Gallipoli, but yeah. in only six weeks we lost the, lost the same numbers here. So it's the thing that always absolutely shocks Australians is when you just give them that. I mean, we don't want to break war down into statistics, but it does really sum it up that when you first walk the west, the ground of the Western Front and you say to people in those first two battles between, you know, in, in July and August 1916, mm-hmm. We lost more men in our first two actions on the Western Front than in the Gallipoli campaign. It's it's just extraordinary. And it's the important thing about the Western Front compared to Gallipoli. Gallipoli always will deserve its place as that first action. And, the you know, it's it's iconic. And I love going to Gallipoli. Yeah. But the real you know, mass killing and dying occurred on the Western Front. It's just a, it's an extraordinary place. And 
there's nowhere that sums that up more than Posi Air. So we're going to talk about the battle and we're going to talk talk about walking the ground. But I think what we should do is let's let's break it down into three stages so it's a bit manageable because it was quite okay. a big action. So let's talk about the uh, the opening phase of the battle and the first attack on the village. And then we can talk about the attack on the windmill and the German trench lines. And then we yes. can talk about that advance up the ridge towards Mukay Farm. I think those are the three big phases of the battle yeah. that uh, that can break it down to be a little bit more manageable. So just to put it in historic context, we're back on the on the Somme battlefields. The Battle of the Somme had been raging since the 1st of July 1916 when the British lost all those men in the that initial first day advance. Uh, they then changed tack a little bit and, they, and it became this battle of attrition and the British were slogging their way towards the German lines with varying levels of success along the line. And now fast forward three weeks, we're on the we're at the 23rd of July. Uh, the Australians have had the disastrous attack at Fromel a few days earlier, but now some new fresh Australian units have been called on to fight their first action uh, on the Western Front. So tell us about those Australian units and, and what they did in those opening days on the from the 23rd of July onwards. Okay, so, so Matt, um, initially... Um, uh, ordered to attack in the 1st Australian Division. Um, now, they're under command that the overall commander for the for the 1st Australian Division is the one ANZAC Corps commander, a guy called Birdwood. But he's under command of another guy who is um, a controversial character, and I say that very, very loosely, a guy called Goff. And you know exactly who I'm talking about. Um, when I was doing my master's degree, I tried... To find something that I could say about Goff that was in any way giving him his due, and I could find nothing. Now, Goff is an impetuous character. Um, he's overly ambitious. He's a bully. This guy, he's bullied, but he bullies his own staff officers. And when you read a little bit into his character, you can almost see his staff officer saying, "Yeah, whatever. We'll just do what he says, just for a bit of peace of mind." But he orders the First Australian Division. Um, under the divisional commander, a guy called uh, Walker, General Walker. And General Walker is um, a really good um, commander because Goff almost orders them into attack straight away. And Walker puts his foot down and he goes back to um, Birdwood and Birdwood's uh, chief of staff, Brudenell White. And he said, my men are not prepared. My guns are not registered. And Goff quite impetuously says, no, you will attack straight away. And Walker virtually puts his foot down and says, no, my men are not going to attack. They're not prepared. The guns aren't registered. And he manages to get a postponement with the support of Walker. So they get enough time for him to be able to get his men into position to get the Australian guns to register um, onto target. And... Um, Let's Where just explain your... what we mean there, Joe, when we talk about register. Tell us exactly what that involves with the okay, artillery. Okay, so what, what that means is you will have spotters, so you might have aerial reconnaissance, or you will have observation posts. And what they're looking at, they're looking for the German frontline positions. Aerial reconnaissance is looking for German batteries that are out of the line of sight. And what they then do is they send back map coordinates. This is all put on to a trench mapping system. The map coordinates are then sent back to our artillery, so our Australian and British guns. And then with the use of artillery science, which goes about 3,000 miles above my head, um, they are able to register the guns so the fire, they fire on the map coordinate from where 
the German batteries and German positions have been spotted so that you can fire a gun, um, what is we call indirectly. So you can't see it with the naked eye, but using all this um, trigonometry and science, you're able to hit them on target. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it's an essential so part of warfare during the First World yeah. War is that the the, the artillery uh, was essential to infantry attacks and the guns had to be shooting accurately. So they had yeah. to be sighted into targets. So sorry, I took you off on a bit of a tangent there, but it's an interesting okay. facet. And it's a vital one when we're talking about uh, battles like the Battle of Pozier. Yeah. So tell us so more about the First Division and what they were asked to do. Okay. So the First Division, their main objective was to take um, the village of Poziers. Now, what the Germans had done, they had defended the village like a stronghold. So you have a number of trench systems, and all these trench systems were named on the trench maps. You have Pozier Trench, you have K Trench, Tramway Trench. But the village where it sits, um, and if you go on the battlefield, some of you, when you join us on the ground, it sits on the main Albert to Beaupalm Road, which intersects the battlefield. It sits at a high point. So from wherever uh, the German army was sat, especially um, at the uh, western end of Poziers, they dominate the ground. And the German army had been dug in here since 1914. It's chalky ground. They'd not only been dug underneath the ground because the ground is really conducive to uh, building underground tunnels. There were warrens of them, but also they'd used concrete bunkers and dug up on the ground. And dominating the Posier, the western end of Posier's village, was a position known as Gibraltar. And this was a huge bunker. It was like a, uh, a block of flats. And it had a 360-degree view of the battlefield. And this is what would be facing the 1st Australian Division. Now, if you look at the ground today, you have two valleys either side of the main Albert Boat Palm Road, one is called Sausage Valley, one is called Mash Valley, Sausage and Mash Valley. And the way the Australians, the 1st Australian Division, come into the line is using these valleys, this dead ground. So they can't be seen necessarily by the naked eye. And they're using whatever kind of dead ground, um, sunken lanes, to get up to position in order to be ready to attack on the time when they uh, are set to attack the German positions. Some of the gunners are, um, I can't remember his name now, he's a sergeant, but he pulls his gun right up uh, along a sunken road until it's almost in line with the uh, Gibraltar. And in order to aid the attacking infantry, he fires um, round after round after round into the German positions to soften them up before the Australians will eventually attack. The Australians will attack, they attack during uh, the night at the German positions. And because of the uh, uh, preparation that Walker has insisted upon, because of the time he has been allowed to register his guns and to keep pounding into the German positions, that first attack by the 1st Australian Division is what we call a successful attack. They take a huge amount of casualties, but we achieve our objectives very shortly. Gibraltar is surrounded and overwhelmed by Australian troops. Now, what happens once you attack and you get into these German positions, you consolidate your troops, so you, you begin to um, assess the situation, and then you prepare for another attack. 
And what that means is that the infantry have a bit of time to um, be drawn out of the line. Fresh troops will take over from them. But all the logistical effort behind you is working frantically to dig new communication trenches. We get into German positions, but of course, all the German positions are facing the opposite way that we want to attack. So all those positions have to be turned around. And this involves the work of Australian engineers. Uh, the guns have to re-register again onto targets that were far further forward. So when we think, yeah, that was a successful attack, there is a whole system of work that's frantically going on a pace behind in order to prepare for that second phase. But overall, the first Australian division's first attack uh, under the command of Walker was a success. Um, very different to when they are relieved by the second Australian division and will be attacking towards the windmill, which is moving further east um, up through Posia's village. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A couple of things I recall about the first phase of this attack from reading veterans' accounts was firstly, when we talk about the village of Pozier. I'll use that in quote marks because there was not a building left. It had been so smashed by artillery fire. I heard one veteran say the only way you knew when you were in what used to be the village was the mud was a different shade of, was a shade of red because of the brick dust had been mixed yep. up with the dirt. And so the yep. ground was slightly red in hue because of the brick dust churned up there. That was the only way you knew you yep. were in the village. But also Gibraltar, that big bunker that you mentioned, a, a fascinating story, one that I always enjoy telling people when I'm there, is that after they captured this this pillbox and they captured a number of Germans in and around it and they removed them and sent them back for interrogation, and the first thing that they said was, do you know who the enemy was that captured you? They said to the Germans, and the Germans said, yes, we, we know it's the Australians. And when they asked how they knew that, they said because the night before the attacks, the Australians had advanced right up next to Gibraltar and then attacked overnight to capture it. Uh, before they attacked it, they uh, the Australians had been calling out to the Germans throughout the night and uh, yelling out to the defenders, we're coming to get you, Jerry. You know, the Australians are here. You better look out. And so uh, so by the time they were overrun and captured, the Germans uh, knew very well who they were facing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the cheeky Aussies, I could just imagine them digging in and yelling out to this big pillbox they're about to attack the next day that we're on our way, boys. Yeah. You know, look out, Germans, here we come. So I, I do always love those little Australian stories. But um, you're right, the 1st Division did a monumental job um, capturing the remains of the village and this high ground. And it had been an area where the attack had stalled for, for, for several yeah. days. And so it was great to see the Australians come in and, and take that ground. But, of course, the work was only just beginning because now 
the absolutely exhausted and shattered first division who'd suffered very high casualties were relieved by the second division uh, who had to continue the attack. And so tell us about particularly this, this, this famous thing I'm sure many people have heard about, the windmill at Pozier. What was yeah. the windmill and where was it located? Um, well, effectively, um, there wasn't a windmill when the battle was uh, there. There had been a windmill there in previous years. But it, it's it's really the windmill is the highest point you're on from wherever you're stood on the windmill. Even today, you can stand on this site and there's still uh, remnants of what would have been a concrete structure there, a building there, um, which is is um, been left. Really, you can see the remnants there, but it is there's, there's nothing of a, a huge memorial there. It's just the ground. Um, and it holds a resonance today, but it is the highest point. It sits at the eastern. It's a rough region. mound, isn't it? It's yeah. a, it's it's the same as it was during the battle. It's just a sort of a rough earthen mound, which was effectively the foundations of the windmill. And today, the yeah. mound is still there and covered with grass. And if you go to the diorama at the Australian War Memorial and see see the diorama of Pozier on the horizon, you see the little mound, which is the windmill, as the Australians attack towards it. Very different place today from what you see in that diorama. In the diorama, it was just a a devastated landscape with this little mound, the only high point. And, of course, today there's a pretty little village there, but um, it's it's a fabulously historic place, isn't it, when you yeah. stand there? Yeah. And so um, this is the objective of the 2nd Australian Division under its commander, a guy called Leg. Now, um, this becomes a little bit controversial, even more controversial if, if you're a British guy trying to tell Australians because Leg was not a particularly good general. Um, he's ordered by um, Goff, uh, Goff orders uh, Birdwood to order Leg to go to attack. And for whatever reason, um, possibility there's a possibility that everybody who's coming out onto the Western Front, you want to be the divisional commander that is extremely successful. So I think there's a, a certain element of that. But nevertheless, Leg sends his second division into attack and it is a complete disaster. And what you've got to imagine when you're standing up on these quiet fields that the battlefield had been so pummeled and so pounded forget sort of trench systems as it were um if you're trying to uh, fight forward um as the australian troops were take the german positions you lose all reference points and like matt was saying earlier you're quite right the only way you could fathom out what was the village is red brick dust but any, anywhere where there's a reference point has completely disappeared. And this affects your fighting troops fighting forward. It affects your communications. Because as you're fighting forward, you might have troops that have got into a germ, the, the German positions, the front and second line positions. So what you're going to be doing is you're going to be sending a runner back with a message, giving a, a message telling them of the situation you're in. But your runner is trying to find his way back to maybe battalion headquarters, divisional headquarters, with absolutely no idea of where to go. It may take him, I don't know, three or four hours to get back, by which time the position on the battlefield has changed. So you enter a phase where everything is completely confused. One side doesn't really know what the other side is doing. That initial attack, though, by 2nd Australian Division is a disaster. Leg is ordered to pull his men back from the battlefield and they undergo um, a phase where he was he pulled his men back. He has to his men have to 
retrain or, or regroup, reorganize. And they undergo a period where there is an actual plan of attack. And this is postponed a number of times. Again, Goff grudgingly gives a postponement in order for the second Australian division to attack again on the windmill at Pozier's Ridge. Um, and most famously, one of their battalions, 14th Battalion, you will see um, the involvement of Albert Jacker on the battlefield. Um, again, a bit of a con controversial action um, because he is uh, defending uh, a dugout when all of a sudden, um, so, so allegedly the story goes, uh, some Germans having taken Australians prisoner uh, bypassed the dugout and lobbed a grenade into it. And according to the story, Jacker is wounded in that attack, but nevertheless, with his ears ringing, he comes out with a load of Australian mates and there, there uh, ensues a hand-to-hand -hand, um, sort of combat fight, quite brutal, you know, bayonets, uh, knuckle dusters, anything you can pick up to fight with, you're going to be fight with, uh, fighting. But they take the Germans prisoner. The Australians that the Germans have held, realising that suddenly they're free, um, throw themselves into the melee on the battlefield. And there's many that think that um, Albert Jacker, for that action, should have been awarded a bar to his Victoria Cross. But Albert Jacker is, is one of these, he's a true soldier. He's one of these men that has a bit of a disregard for saluting officers on the battlefield. Uh, very much respected by his men, but but for whatever the reason, um, he is awarded um, a, a, a different medal as to the Victoria Cross, a different gallantry medal. He doesn't quite reach that Victoria Cross. And still today, it's a controversial um, piece of the battle that he should have possibly been awarded a bar to his VC. Eventually, yep. the windmill will be taken by the 2nd Australian Division, uh, a controversial battle. But then all eyes move to one of this strongly fortified position, a position known as Mukai Farm, Mukau Farm or Mucky Farm, depending on which side you're on. I think it's a Mucky Farm for the British and Mukau Farm for the Australians. As Geoffrey Malins calls it, this is one of the most strongly fortified positions on the whole of the Pozier's Ridge Line. So that um, that was very well described, Joe. Thank you for that. That epic second phase of the battle when they had to take not just the windmill but the two very strong German trench lines, OG one and OG two. And I remember yeah. again a veteran account talking about that that they the the second wave went forward after a first wave had gone in to attack the German trenches. The second wave went in and found the first wave lying down in front of the barbed wire. And so the second wave lay down alongside them, expecting okay they must be lying there, getting ready to make a second charge. And it took them some minutes to realise that the men weren't lying there waiting for another charge. They're all dead. Yeah. And so uh, just the, the sort of horrors that you get on the battlefield. And, it's again, it's an extraordinary area. We, we won't talk about the awful redevelopment that's currently going on there with the new no, memorials that are being privately built there. Let's skip that entirely. <laughs> you can look that up on uh, social media if you're interested in hearing about that. Um, but... Um, yeah, again, just a, a, such a, an epic place for Australians to visit. I mean, epic in the, the legitimate sense of it, not in the, in the modern sense of it, but just, a, again, as we said about at, uh, Fromel last week, there's just a weight in the air when you're on this site. You stand on the windmill mm -hmm. and you look out and you just realise that not just a few hundred or a few thousand, but tens of thousands Australian, of Australians were killed or wounded in the fields immediately in front of you. 
And uh, there's even a bench next to the windmill now in that sort of little memorial park, which says more Austra- the Australians captured this windmill and fell more thickly on this ridge than on any other battlefield of the war. It's just, a, yeah. again, such an important place for Australians. But but you were quite right, Joe, that the attention now turned uh, northwards to, to Mukay Farm and the, there was a, almost a little bit of a swing around in the in the direction of advance here. Now that Pozier had been taken, the high ground had been taken, the the village of Pozier was linked with another village, Tietval, along what was known as Tietval Ridge, mm-hmm. uh, and the... British had suffered horrendous casualties trying to basically advance up the side of the ridge and take it head on. So now that the Australians had captured Pozier, the instruction was advance along the ridge line to try and take the village of Tietval effectively from behind. But in between yeah. Pozier and Tietval is this, as you say, Mukay Farm, Mukau Farm. I mean, it's a humorous name, but there is nothing funny at all about what happened at Mukay Farm. And when I was first learning about the battles on the Western Front, this name just personified everything gallant and horrific about the First World War because the fighting mm-hmm. at Mukay Farm was some of the bloodiest and confused fighting of the Battle of the Somme. And just talk us through. I mean, it's, it's a very complicated battle. When you read about it in official histories, it's hard to follow because there's virtually no landmarks on the battlefield, so they resort to map references mm-hmm. and the troops will advance from point sixty seven to point four zero two, and it gets very confusing. But just yeah. give us an overview of what it was like for those soldiers trying to just inch their way towards the heavily defended Mukay farm. Okay, so 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 we say farewell really to the second Australian division, and they are uh, relieved by the fourth Australian division. And um, as you quite rightly say, the whole kind of advance moves northwards. All Thietval is the prize. The village of Thietval uh, is the prize. The problem that the Australians have got is that the Mukau farm or Mukay Farm, whatever you want to call it, sits in a kind of valley. So anybody attacking from the position the Australians would be attacking, you're almost silhouetted on a skyline. The other problem you have with Mukay Farm is the Germans had made sure this was one of the most strongly defended fortified positions on the Somme battlefield. It is, there is still a farm today, but if you remember I said the ground here is chalky, it's really easy to dig. Uh, through the the farm had a massive cellar, and what the Australia, uh, what the Germans had done, sorry, was they dug out from the farm underground warrens of tunnels. There's a, a a kind of dip as you come down the hill on the coach, which is has a copse of trees. This was known as the quarry, and they dug through to the quarry. So wherever the Australians would be attacking from, from the Pozier's ridgeline, you've got the German army popping up almost like rabbits from holes and just mowing men down. We roll from uh, the start of July, uh, sorry, from the end of July through into August and then into September. And try as they might, the Australians are trying to get past Mukay Farm. Now, Mukay Farm has a series of trenches. You have Skyline Trench, Park Lane Trench and then Zigzag Trench that goes um, up the sidelines. These are all interconnected with machine gun positions and fortified bunkers. So it is like a, a complete strong post. And when we talk about the Australians attacking, um, what we generally don't talk about is that when the Australians weren't attacking, the German army were counterattacking. So you have this ebb and flow um, going on throughout the whole of the end of July, throughout the whole of August through into September. The end of August, when the um, Australian, 4th Australian uh, division are attacking and trying to get through into the farm to add to the sheer misery 
on the battlefield, it starts to rain. And there's accounts of the um, attack going in here, uh, very similar to what the Australians would experience up at Third Eep. The misery of attacking in mud-filled shell holes and trenches that are constantly being filled with water, uh, decomposing uh, corpses. Um, and the mud is your enemy as well as the German army is. Your rifle gets clogged with mud, so it doesn't work. If your rifle doesn't work, you lose the ability to fire on the enemy. You know, even if you stop for a brief uh, bite of a hard tack biscuit, that is filled with mud. Uh, if you stop to, uh, if the, the battle stops for you to get a bit of a freshen up to, to clean your teeth, your toothbrush uh, is filled with mud. So the mud and the wet gets in is, is your enemy as much as the German army are. And the German army are reluctant and will not give up this position at all costs. They know that if Mouquet Farm falls, then uh, the way is open for the Australians to attack Tietbau. So they will hold on to this tenacious grip with a will that is uh, uh, like steel. The Australians also have this will of steel to try and get through to the farm, but try as they might, uh, they can't. The very last attack at Mouquet Farm is undertaken, I think, by the 49th, 51st and 52nd Battalions. And one of the um, last messages that comes from an officer attacking along Zigzag Trench, I think, is uh, point 52, holding out. But please get our guns forward. We cannot hold on for much longer. And I believe that group of Australian soldiers, that was the last message. And their bodies, I believe, were recovered when they were widening the road back in the 80s, the 80s or 90s. Mute Farm wouldn't fall. The Germans tenaciously hold, held on to their grip. And consequently, Tietbal doesn't fall from behind. Tietbal is eventually taken from a frontal assault, um, but only in October uh, 1916, when we're getting towards the end, really, of the Battle of the Somme. But um, that, uh, from Pozier's Ridge down to Mouquet Farm, that is your one and a half square miles of what is really Australian DNA, I suppose you could call it, because I would invite anybody who is Australian to come out to that particular battlefield today and say there is not some point of Australian DNA still in the ground here. There is so many still missing that the whole of the area, I would, I, I, I would argue, is a memorial to the Australians in itself. It's just an extraordinary place, Joe, as you say. Thousands of Australians missing there, not just a couple of dozen yeah. or a couple of hundred. Literally thousands of Australians are still there beneath that ground. And... We visit the village of Pozier and there's the wonderful First Division memorial to the First Division. Yeah. The windmill site is now a memorial to all the Australians, but it was originally a memorial to the Second Division that fought there. Um, there's no memorial to the Fourth Division. Their memorial's way in the east uh, at uh, Bellinglees to reflect the good work they did throughout the throughout the entire Western Front campaign. But that drive, when we leave Pozier, we get back, you get back in your car or back on the coach and your next stop is always going to be Tietval, the wonderful memorial to the British missing at Tietval, and so that's a one of the most important sites on the Western Front. And so you drive from Pozier to Tietval, to Tietval, it takes five or six minutes. You cover these farm fields, you go past a little farm on the right, and, you know, people are back on the coach and they're relaxing and having a sip of water and chatting about what they've just seen. 
but we're covering this ground that is the scene of so much bloodshed and in some ways a little bit different to Pozier, where Pozier is quite a glorious battlefield. This was, even though it was costly, it was a scene of a great Australian victory. The slog towards Mukay Farm, as you say, through the mud, it was it was literally inch by inch. It was men just going from shell hole to shell hole and losing half their number and the survivors then getting reinforced and then pushing on to the next shell hole or the next trench or the, the next you know, crossroads or the quarry, it was just horrific. And I remember years ago reading a letter that had been written after the war in the early 1920s by a mother from Sydney writing to the War Department to say, there still has not been any word of my two sons who Mm. were fighting at Pozier in 1916. And then sadly, the reply is also in the file that she got the reply from the War Department to say, there's been nothing heard of them. So I think you can just assume that they both fell in that action, that glorious action at Mukay Farm. And for so many Australian families, that name, Mukay Farm, a you know, very weird, a very unusual French name, but it just came to personify the, the horror of the, of the First World War and so many Australians were lost there. So it's, it's just an extraordinary place. Uh, Joe, how do you find it when you go back there and when you take Australians back to walk the ground? I mean, I know that when I've led tours there, a number of times I've been there with, um, with family members who either someone was killed or wounded. So many men were killed or wounded at Pozier that it really was a big dividing line in the war. You usually fought, you see men that either fought up until Pozier or from Pozier onwards. Not a lot of men actually fought through that, uh, that time. So how do you find it heading back there and, and leading relatives back there in particular? Um, well, it's a big honour for me to take Australian relatives back. I think more so, and I'm not saying that just because I'm on an Australian podcast here, but I mentioned it earlier that the Australians come such a long way. And what we've got to remember is at the end of the war, it was relatively easy for British widows or pilgrims to come out onto the battlefield. We can be there uh, relatively easily because it's not too far away. But for some of these women back in Australia, uh, there was nothing. There was nothing to cut. They they didn't have the the means. They didn't have the wherewithal um, to get halfway around the world and that must have been soul destroying I mean if you can imagine getting that letter and that finality of that black uh, letter telling them that their sons were missing and and the thought that you are never going to see them again and the possibility that you are never going to see where they lost their lives Um, so for me um, I find it really humbling to bring Australian passengers and sometimes you'll be on a coach and you'll be speaking to a passenger. We always get the pilgrimages. We always parachute them into our um, tour. And wherever possible, we make sure that we get to where these um, people are remembered. But quite often, it will be somebody coming back for the first time. You know, the family have not come back and this is the first time. Um, and so for me, it is as emotional uh, a thing to do and it, it's it's the one thing that I go back at the end of the day having done my job and said right this is why I do what I do because to give the people that um, maybe a sense of closure um, to be able to be um, to share in that um, p- those pilgrimages is one of the one of the best things about doing my job um, and some of these, like, like we say, it might be the first time they come back. So that, for me, is quite a humbling experience. 
We've used the right word there, Joe, a pilgrimage when family members visit a grave for the first time on this on these tours. Even if they're removed by several generations, it's still a very special moment to stand there with them. So it's been yeah. very special to walk this ground with you, Joe, in this virtual sense to talk about the Battle of Pozieres and, and Fromel last week. And, and don't forget, if you've been listening to this or watching this video and, and, and want to join us, you can walk the ground and see these sites as well. Uh, on on one of our tours it's it's the thing we love doing more than anything else so please we would love you to join us on the battlefields and, and bring this history to life but joe we'll get you back on very soon on the podcast it's always a pleasure to talk to you and until i see you on the battlefields very soon or until we have you back on the show just uh, thanks so much for joining us and thank you very much for inviting me um it's been a real pleasure and i really look forward to seeing you all back on the western front as soon as possible Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.